Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, Mark Hagen, Mark, tell us your job title. Everybody at the BBC has got fantastically long job titles, usually with brackets near the end and, you know, Vice President. colons and so forth. Well, what have you got? Well, mine's short, but the actual job's complicated. Right. So, I am an executive producer in the BBC's audio and music department. Audio and music? Yes. Yeah, right, yeah. so there's more than just radio we're talking about. It's, it's, yes, it's everything that's connected. It's all the radio stations, plus... Anything that deals with music, except classical music. Right, OK, because somebody else wouldn't like you treading on their turf. Though. That's, you know, different, okay. different ball so game. So g- give people an idea of what you do, because they will have seen that you occasionally post on the Word website, usually from exotic spots where people wish they were. Yeah. Hello, this is Mark Hagen. Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Nashville. I'm in Hawaii or yeah. Texas <laughs> or, or wherever. Give us, a, give us an idea of your recent itinerary. Well, um... I've been in Memphis, I've been in New York, and I've been in, well, Brooklyn, I suppose, which is obviously adjacent. Oh, and in Mississippi. Um, This is just quite recently. Yes, in the last three weeks. What thin excuse have you got for for why licensed peers should pay to send you these places? I have been in Memphis with Susie Quattro, making a programme for Radio 2's celebration of what would have been Elvis Presley's 75th birthday in January. Right. Uh, And we are doing a documentary about Elvis's houses. Oh, really? Oh, what, because more it, than Graceland? Yes, oh, right. because if you look at his, his life, there are only really four houses that he lived in for any length of time at all. And fortuitously, they happen to coincide with his levels of fame, or the big changes in his life. So yes, if you, you start yeah, yeah, in this yeah. literally two-room shack in Tupelo, where he was born, yeah. and lived for the first ten or so years of his life. Was that rebuilt? It's been spruced up. Yeah, like everything in yes. America. And, and, I, think, and I, think, I think it's moved slightly. You know, I think it's gone to the left by 15 right. yards or something. That's classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's a museum, right? So, yes, yes. And you, so he started yeah. in Tupelo, Mississippi, yep. dirt poor. Absolutely. And then they moved to Memphis. Moved to it? Memphis, and then the first place they lived in for any length of time was a, well, what we call council housing. Housing projects. Yes, in, yeah, in Lauderdale Court, uh, which is a, a two-bedroom apartment. So that's quite a big step up from, from Tupelo. And then he bought his first house on Audubon Drive in Memphis, very posh neighbourhood. Clearly didn't fit in, lasted about a year before... What, the local bourgeoisie used to look down the nose? They really didn't like him, apparently, because Gladys used to keep chickens in the backyard and they'd hang the washing (laughs) out. None of this this went down at all. And that was before any kind of success, then? Oh, no, this was was exactly on success. This was, here's the first big check... You see, those, right, right, right. you see those famous pictures of them hanging about. They had a backyard swimming pool, didn't yes, they? Yes. And and there are famous pictures of Elvis. And he's probably only about twenty or something yeah. like that. And I think I think what happened was, of course, that that was in the first flush of his fame. No thought of security or anything like this. So of course, the place was mobbed all the time. Yeah. By, yeah. You know, hordes of teenage girls yeah, hoping yeah. to see Elvis and usually succeeding. Yes. So then he moved to Graceland. Moved to Graceland in 1956, I think. And of course, the, the thing that strikes you about Graceland, have you been to Graceland, Mark? I have not been to Graceland, no. Is it's 
It's very modest. Well, it's quite it? small. Mm. It? It's, mm. by, by contemporary standards, yeah, I mean, Wayne Rooney would put his, you know, his, his gardener in, in Graceland. Yeah. You know, the, the, people's idea of a, a kind of palace for, a, for a, an established superstar is far greater nowadays. Oh, yeah. And it's, but, but the interesting thing about it, if you look at it in terms of, of how Elvis looked at the world, um, from, in Tupelo, which is a tiny, tiny town, I didn't realise actually quite how small it is. It's literally a one-street oh, really? town. And Elvis is from East Tupelo, which yeah. is the less metropolitan part of Tupelo. <laughs> <laughs> so, and in fact, we talked to, to somebody who, who was a, a, a childhood friend of Elvis who pointed out they didn't have asphalt until 1969. Oh, God. So, is it one of these Mississippi towns that had a railroad track going through yes, it? Yes. Yeah. So it is, is he on the wrong side of the tracks or the right side of the tracks? Not quite sure. I would suspect the wrong. I get a but, the wrong anyway. usually means the black side of it in the Mississippi town. Yes, well, there's certainly the, the Presley family for a lot of their life were, were, if not actually living in the black community, certainly adjacent to it. Right, yeah. okay. You yeah. know, much, much more kind of integrated than yeah. white families yeah. would have been yeah. at, at that time. But in that community, the two most important people are the priest or the pastor and the doctor. Right. Because obviously, you know, the, the doctor, very high social standing. So in Elvis's universe, the highest social position you could aspire to was that of doctor. And Graceland is literally a doctor's house. Yes. It's a country doctor's house. Oh, right. And so, so that, that, that in his mind, would have been available. the huge, yeah. the huge did, did you get into the first floor? When I went, the, the, mm. it was only the ground floor that you could visit. No, they don't let anybody in the first floor. No. <laughs> President, President Bush apparently turned up one day with a Japanese prime minister in tow and said, could we have a look at this now? I really so it, probably upstairs it's all modern, you know. It's like flat screen Possibly. tellies and uh, you know, well, they've been rented it out. Allegedly, it's the it's the it's the, the two bedrooms. I think Elvis's office. If you if you scour the internet, there are some photographs of the bathroom now. So seems to have escaped from somebody's private collection. Oh, really? So yeah. you're doing a program with yes. Susie Quattro yes. about Elvis's houses. Now this is an interesting point because. You, you, you must sit there at the BBC and you must have a calendar that brings up anniversaries all the time. You know, when's, when's something happening in the, in the you know, Beatles anniversary or a punk anniversary or whatever? And you must have to go through and think, what's not been done about Elvis Presley before? Is that, is that the case? Kind of, <laughs> yes. I mean, in this case, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a good one because um, Susie declined Elvis's invitation to visit Graceland oh, in really? 1974. So she got an excuse, she got an in. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite a good story. Why did she decline? Well, apart from the sensible reason. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she was on tour in Memphis. At that time, she had her version of All Shook Up was on the American charts. And Elvis apparently heard this and rang her up when she was sitting peacefully in her hotel room in Memphis and said, do you want to come over? Come out for steak supper. Susie would tell you that she was, you know, the complicated, you know, in a relationship anyway. Yeah. Um, With Len bit, Tucky. Yes, a bit busy. You know, the, I think she was a bit scared. Or let, be be let her go. Yeah. <laughs> but How old so Susie Quattro is ridiculously young now, isn't she? She she was I think she's fifty nine, so she would have been can't work it out. Twenty four, she was twenty. Yeah, early early, early twenties. Yeah, yeah. In, in and it would have been terrifying, wouldn't it? Oh, twenty three year old girl to suddenly. And she is a huge Elvis fan. Right. So to suddenly um, just to pick up the phone in that hotel room and to have Elvis on the other the other end of the line. So is Elvis directly, or was it? I believe so. Yes. Me, I yes. Mr. Presley. No, no. I believe no. Elvis directly. Oh, right, okay. So you're doing you've done you're doing a program about Elvis's houses. What else have you done recently? Well, I, um, we just finished uh, working with Queen to restore the old Grey Whistle Test. Hammersmith concert from 1975. It's on BBC Two on Friday night, listeners. So, 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 so what's, your, what's your role in that? How does that take place? What well, do you have to what, do, what, sit in the what, studio with members of the Queen? What, what I do is I, I, I work across uh, radio, for Radio 2 and for Six Music, um, television with our, our friend and colleague Mark Cooper, and also television and radio for BBC Worldwide, which is exploiting the BBC archive yeah, for commercial use outside the See, UK. See, this is largely. a word reader's fantasy job. This, <laughs> this is my fantasy job. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. So go on. And, so, so in, in, in this case, Queen have been wanting to do something with the House of Concert for quite some time. So this is something that was shot when? 1975, Christmas Eve. By Whistle Test. By the Whistle Test. Went out, not actually live, I don't think, but a slightly delayed right. broadcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the week that Bohemian Rhapsody was number one. Okay. So, so it's, it's right Queen the, right at the beginning of their huge success. Really getting their timing right, actually. So <laughs> well, it, it was number one for a very long time. It was, <laughs> true. Yes, it was. yes. And so, essentially, Queen, the organisation, have gone away with the... And it was also broadcast on Radio 1, it's a simulcast. So 
in this instance, we had multi-track recordings. Yeah, very good quality. Because um, the actual TV sound, not very good. Right. As is traditionally the yeah, case yeah. from that, that era. So Queen have gone away and restored the sound at no little expense. Uh, and it does sound absolutely fabulous. So, so and then we've, we've dealt with the, the film aspect of it. So, so just as an example of it, you know, because people often you know, post on the World website, uh, wordmagazine.co.uk, and say, why can't the BBC show this? I remember seeing some old broadcast 30 years ago. Why can't they show it? Now, I think you should explain what happens, I don't know, without getting into legal technicalities... What happens to the ownership of, of a performance like that that is made on BBC in 1975? It depends on what you want to do with it. In, in this instance, if we, were, if we just wanted to repeat it on BBC Two or BBC Four, you just can, you know, with payment of the appropriate So you pay, you're paying 20% of the original fee. Oh, yeah, whatever, the, whatever the current, you know... But just to be clear, you, the Queen don't own this film, do they? It's no, by the BBC. but we, 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 the BBC couldn't exploit it commercially or, or sell it abroad without Queen's no, consent They can and stop cooperation. the music, can't they? they? Can they? I don't think they can if, no. it's, if it's purely a, a repeat. If you do anything to it, then yes, the, you, know, you, you have to seek their permission. You certainly have to... But it's all right for them to do something to it. Brian May could probably right now, in fact, is, is pasting some brand new league guitar solo. No, same, this thing. same, same <laughs> thing. We, they, they, could, they couldn't change... What we've but it's done a without, yes, yeah, it, it's a, it's you, a partnership. You can't ride roughshod over them, you know, because no. they, they wouldn't deal with you in the future. Or no. it's and, a negotiation, and you yeah. don't want to either. No, I mean, no, you, you want no, to, to have the the program that reflects, you know, what you've done in the best right. possible way, and also what they've done. Absolutely. So, is there an archive? Do, do you go down, Mark? Do you go down like Arthur Askey in some ancient film? You put on a white coat and you go right down into a cellar under Broadcasting House, and there, just row upon row of old music programs. No, it, well, it's, it used to be a bit like that. There's, oh. a, there's, a, there's a BBC facility. <laughs> just say there is. Uh, All right. <laughs> That's what we no, want no. to hear, Mark. Uh, quick edit. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm no, there is a, there's a facility called Windmill Road, named after the road it's in in, in, in West London, where the BBC store most of their physical. Windmill Road. Yeah, yeah. Everybody look at that on the A to Z. It's an exotic so, industrial so estate. Under Windmill Road, everything is... Or it, it, it used to be. Now it, now it's primarily... It's, it's moving into the digital era. So yeah. actually, if I want something, I, I can See, almost look it up on the computer. Are filling yeah. up, are they, with you? I imagine there's probably a huge uh, double reel of uh, un, un, unbroadcast of, of Nick Drake no, sitting on a shelf collecting <laughs> dust. You see, no? So, well, no, tell us about this. You know, what, so well, so how, do you, how, do you, how do you access this stuff? How do you, how do you find out if there is you know, a rare bit of footage well, of Nick Drake? I mean, a lot of the time... Now, I've spent mm, 12 years now sort of living in the BBC archive. So I have a fairly good idea of what's, <coughs> what's in there. And actually, you, I'm sure you'll be the same. You rely on your memory a lot. Right. You know, I, I think you mentioned this the other day, David. In the days before video recorders and DVD and the internet and all that, the stuff you saw really stayed in your mind. It imprinted itself mm. in your memory. And I can vividly remember seeing whistle tests and Top of the Pops and other programmes. Yeah. You remember that there are performances. Then you start to go, oh... If there's that performance, I they must have done something I mean, is like this. The, the, the classic example of this is that if, when Jimi Hendrix appeared on the Lulu show, famously, everybody remembers him doing starting Hey Joe and then going into Sunshine of Your Love. And it wasn't until relatively recently, i.e. about a decade ago, so I wonder if he did anything else on the show. He was like, oh, look, he does Voodoo Child. Never thought of that. So with it, cause I can remember briefly sitting for John Peel about 1982 on his radio show and being rather amazed at the time to find that his sessions, which went right back to, I suppose, about 71 or 1970, uh, the Faces, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Incredible String Band, like, were just in a little dusty cupboard in little white boxes with just a little bit of scrawl on the side. And often you couldn't quite work out without playing them what they were. I mean, I, I don't, are there any examples of that? In the, in no, that's, the, all, that's all been, it, it was that probably all been you know, yeah. tidied up a lot. Yeah. I mean, and, you and never find a reel with, with nothing on it and, and, and get a chance to No, you do occasionally find things. I mean, things are turning up. Yeah, bit by bit, you finally go, oh, never seen that before. Where did that like come what? from? Yeah, what? There's, there's a program called... Oh, I can't remember the name of the program now. There's a program from... BBC Scotland in 1964, The Beat Room, Colour Beat, um, oh, right. which has John Lee Hooker in it. Oh, my oh, God. And The Yardbirds. Oh, wonderful. And The Kinks, none of which, you know, which has been around for a while and has suddenly been catalogued. So, you know, in, in 
administrative so you now have to control right. oh, there it is a reason to use that yes. <laughs> you really you've got to oh, work that's easy out. enough you know <laughs> yes <laughs> so yeah regional tv used to turn up loads of this stuff didn't it yeah you know, people went on promotional tours and did stuff yeah. in wales or scotland and or we, we would periodically find episodes of top of the pops in actually particularly in glasgow because oh, really? they would occasionally time shift it and so they would have recordings of Top of the Pops. They wouldn't have the that studio in wasn't necessary, We didn't yeah. necessarily we see, still have. Yeah, Fraser yeah. and I were talking about this the other day in, yeah. the, in the light of, uh, I can't remember what, old-time radio broadcast yes. that you find on the internet nowadays, which is old, to, you can listen to fantastic old detective thrillers from the 30s in America. And, of course, you get tons of this stuff in America, none in Britain. Why? Because America had various time zones, and therefore it used to record stuff. And send transcription discs to the West Coast for them to, you know, for, run it. Completely. Everything the BBC did, pretty much, was live. So the only reason they would record it is for kind of posterity, for backup, uh, yeah, wasn't it? it was, yeah, yeah. It was or in case they might want to repeat in it in the unlikely event. Yeah. So what's and, the... Go on. And, and there are those instances, again, in, in for the World Service and for, you know, early versions of BBC Worldwide. They did have transcription discs of some concerts and some documentaries that are the, the, the reason we still have some of those... But this is exactly the thing. You know, where, we, where is it going to go? Goes out on the BBC. Thank you. Yeah, that's it's it. gone. Yeah, it's gone. So, it's what's the good. thing you'd like to make and can't? Oh, there's so many things. Uh, it's the the, the I, I'd love to have a proper top of the pops archive from the 1960s, but it's it's just not going to happen now. Right. Um, so you could go through and you could choose yeah, any week it, or whatever. If you, you look at the paperwork, and we've got all the paperwork. Which is, you know, on the one hand a boon, on the other hand rather depressing. So the and original contracts the that Herman's Hermit yeah. signed in 1965, 32 guineas, or whatever it was, is yeah. there yeah. Yeah. in a bit of paper yeah. and a carbon. Yeah, and not the, not the tape. <laughs> oh, right. oh, yeah. So yeah. you can see who would have been on. And I, I think I'm right in saying that, that from the 1960s Top of the Pops, we have something like 50 performances. Wow. And from the whole of the 1960s? Yeah. yeah, and they're not the performances you would choose to have kept. No. <laughs> yes. You've got, you've got the seekers. Because, you know, and, and this, is the, yeah, this is a well-known, you know, fact about, actually not just the BBC, about television in general. It, it was very, the tape was very expensive and very bulky, and people either didn't record it, or if they did record it, would use the tape again the next week. And Precisely, they, they would they'd put Malcolm and Wise over the top mm, of it or something. Mm. But didn't uh, they also used to burn the tape for the... For the the precious metals. I thought, I thought I've never heard that one before. Oh, <laughs> this is heartbreaking yeah. stuff. <laughs> they, they, they rang the, you know, oh, they're, they're always awful. turning. Well, didn't they, Galton and Simpson turned up an old Steptoe and Son recently, didn't they? Yes. That they yes. had from one of them had one of the earliest video machines in Britain, a real steam-driven thing from about 1967 or something like that, and he somehow recorded something one of Steptoe and Sons off the air. And found it recently, and they managed, I think they broadcast it. Well, the but the BBC themselves didn't have it. The, the, most, the most frustrating thing in, in that respect is that the, the BFI have recently taken delivery of something similar, um, which I believe comes. There's, there's a John Lennon connection somewhere. I've only just heard about this, so I'm not completely up on it. But they put this tape in the machine, and it rolls, and it you know, interference all over it. But it's top of the pops from 1967, and oh, who's that? Seems to be Sid Barrett, no. <laughs> and it's seconds of Pink Floyd doing See Emily Play, which has famously been missing since forever. And there's not quite enough to broadcast it completely, but there's enough to go, oh, that's what it looked like. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Once you've done all sorts of technical things to it and slowed it down and played with it. But it is true that if you look at a lot of bands' uh, DVDs, a lot of the uh, resource they use of the 60s and 70s performances is from German programmes like like, uh, Beat Club. Beat Club, yes. yes. Which are actually, in some respects, actually more exciting, I think, than Top of the Pops. Because, of course, this is uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience or Cream or Manfred Mann, whoever it is, abroad, literally not giving a stuff about anything because they think no one back home will ever see them. Although and often, so they, often with David Lee Travis introducing them. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. No, we David Travis introducing us, trying to pretend they're in England. That's right. Well, they were in we England. Some, some of them were in England. Some of them were in England, actually, broadcast to, to, no, they, That's right, yeah. they, shot, they shot them there. Yeah. I'll tell you the things I've seen recently that on, on probably on BBC iPlayer, they're probably still there, you can tell us, which I've been enormously impressed by. And I suppose late 60s, BBC in concerts, in colour, starring Joni Mitchell, yes, James Taylor, yes. Crosby and Nash. Yeah, there's a Carol King one, Carole there's an King. Eagles they're one. Unbelievable. Eagles, absolutely. And they're shot beautifully, it strikes me, with my untutored eye. 
the colour looks fantastic. Yes, they're and lovely. The sound is fantastic. Mm. And there's the whole. There's, there's a in a similar vein. There's a Faces one. Um, there's an El- two Elton John ones. One with an orchestra, one without. And I think there's a John Sebastian. Then there's a lot of strange. But they're things. very kind of only <laughs> showy yeah. things. Yes, aren't they? they're just a record of what's happening. Uh, but they've also got a load of people with interesting haircuts and leather jackets sitting around on scatter cushions, you know, nodding sagely mm. to the, uh, you know, along with the, along with the tunes. It's Great absolutely coats. perfect, you know, uh, vignette of, it, of its time. And it's quite interesting, going back to what we were talking about, that Neil Young didn't license that concert um, for the archives set. And I think they, they said that a, it had been, you know, the BBC had been repeating it, and therefore it was kind of out. Yeah, it's probably been it. reduced. And yeah. B, quite a lot of it was on YouTube if you cared to look. Right, yeah, yeah. Of course, is always the way of these things. So, yeah. do you belong to this little strange Freemasonry of people involved in the kind of reissue archive area where everybody's going around trying to find the, you know, the unbroadcast bit of Nick Drake or something that they can put on a DVD or something like that? Do you do you keep in touch with? People involved in a similar area. A little bit. I mean, the, 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 it's it's a fairly small world, and within that world, everything is fairly well known. So you, you, you try and reach out a bit and into the bits where you might literally find something under somebody's bed. But you see, if it isn't too general a question, there must have been a point at which people realised that this that archive had real value. I mean, when because Dave and I were doing Old Grey Whistle Test, um, you know, in what it was in the early 1980s, I remember a group called Bauhaus being on. Do you remember that? Yeah. I remember them coming in with handheld cameras and they were documenting everything that Bauhaus did. And I remember at the time thinking, what a fantastically good idea. Even though they weren't a terribly significant group, at least they believed that they were. And at least ten years down the line, if Bauhaus wanted to produce the big, ultimate box set, they would have all the material available. And, you know, actually the Beatles didn't go back to put together, as you would know because you dealt with them, they didn't go back to, to, to try and own the material that eventually finished up on Anthology for a long time. Well, and they suddenly said, right, we are now going to buy up every possible Beatles piece of ephemera footage, picture, negative, positive, that we possibly they all, can. They, they always um, claimed that they had ownership, didn't they? And that they, they claimed it, but th- again, this was a, a, a back reaction to something that they realised had far greater value. Well, so they, what, what I get to say that Neil Aspinall was quite quick on this one. Right. Yeah, the, by the end of the 60s, Neil was casting around for, for bits of footage. But, was certainly really, I don't think they, they started in earnest till the 1980s. Actually. No, no. But, but, but the, going, the, going the back, idea was certainly in yeah, there. Yeah, but yeah, just going head. back to the point, so at what point do you think? Because was it something to do with the advent of DVD? Or at what point did people suddenly realise that, that archive, collecting and owning your own archive, was immensely valuable? Not sure. In, B, in BBC terms, that's in the early 70s. Yeah. Because once you get to sort of 70, 71... We've got virtually everything from the whistle test, for example. The, the very early what, shows, no, we, have the, we have the musical inserts, but not the presenter links. Right. And then we've got, what a tragedy. We've got <laughs> yeah, very little Richard Williams in the archive. Um, but we've got virtually everything from then, and pretty much everything from Top of the Pops from sort of 73, 74 onwards. Yeah. Um, and I, I think partly it was to do with there was more space and the tapes became physically smaller. Um, and also people did recognise... That actually, this pop music thing wasn't going to go away. Yeah, yeah. completely. Yeah. But you still have yep. this long period. What amuses me is for years when bootlegs were coming out, artists' common objection was, "Well, it's not the money. It's just that we we don't like we don't like being represented by substandard material, or we weren't very happy with that show or that recording or whatever." Nowadays, they're perfectly happy to stick all manner of it out, aren't they? You know, as soon as they can make any money out of it. Well, yeah, I mean, even as recently, I. I Produced the fir- or was the executive producer on the first Whistle Test DVD, which came out for the 30th anniversary, I That's think. That's right. Yeah. 40th coming up soon. Um, and there were several artists who declined to clear their material for that let's release name, on that. Name let's, name, let's name those guilty men. <laughs> Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown. Did not have fond memories of his performance and didn't wish to, to have it released. Ry Cuda. Right, and what... Uh, so you've seen the have you squad? seen the performances in question? <laughs> Perfectly fine. Perfectly of course fine. Yeah, I remember but, those. But... The artist didn't like them, and so... And Ry Cooter is right. a picky bugger, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. He's quite a difficult he's, code. It's, it's one of the eternal frustrations in my life that we did a, a Top of the Pops 40th DVD two or three years back, and I got 
endless complaints from people who you know, bought it, looked at it, and going, oh, why, is, why aren't the stones on it? Why aren't the birds on it? You think, do you think I didn't think of this? Yes. <laughs> no, and yeah. there, there oh, the stones. Oh, were they around? <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, I'm God, so yes, it's too late. That satisfactory. I know. Recall yes. the DVD. Let's, let's have, you know, Freddie and the Dreamers instead of... Yeah. Instead of satisfactory. Yeah. <laughs> Which bit, for anybody listening who saw those uh, those uh, Whistlefest DVDs, which which bits of footage do you remember uh, most fondly as being the most revelatory? Oh, goodness. early Whalers. That's a great clip. That's remember fantastic, that? oh, isn't it? God. Do, you know, do you know what I Whalers in nineteen seventy three? What I didn't realise for quite a long time was that in those very early Whistlefest, of course, the bands were often miming. Yes, some of them. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you look at that, it took. The Whalers, they are, aren't they? Are they? Mm. Sure. The Whalers, I know this because I've just read a, a, a book about it. Actually, the Whalers recorded their backing track that afternoon. Mm. And Bob Marley sings a live vocal over the top. But that is pretty shattering, isn't it? You see, about, if you I, think about the supposed authenticity. You see, in the days of Top of the Pops, now, Mark, will, Mark will be able to you know, uh, confirm this, but I can remember my brief period as a record plugger was in the days when if you had a band doing Top of the Pops, they couldn't mime to their, their, their record... They had to go into a studio. They had a, a limited amount of time, three hours, I think, or something like this, to re-record their, their tune, yep. and then they can mime to that, right? And this was supervised by a representative of the Musicians' Union. It used to be there in the studio. And what did that person do when it came to the live broadcast? Uh, well, the representative of the Musicians' were they, Union were they would not always substitute? at some point go to the pub... And and the, the tapes would be, you know... Yeah, they would substitute the tape made that afternoon with the record with that the everybody record, which is what everybody wanted to hear in the first place. It seemed to me it provided work for the Musicians' Union, anyway. There, there is a fantastically apocryphal tale about this, which I have tried to pin down and failed to, which is in that period when Joe Jackson was having his first hits. Yes, and, 78. Um, Elvis Costello was still having hits. Elvis, of course... Had the, the, the similarity between Joe Jackson's vocal and Elvis hadn't escaped Elvis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and allegedly, they found themselves in the same studios doing this very thing, re-recording the backing track for use on top of the box. And in a quiet moment, Elvis is supposed to have gone into the studio and recorded his own vocal in place of Joe Jackson's. <laughs> On the grounds that when they played it on in Top of the Pops, Joe would open his mouth and be miming to Elvis. To Elvis. <laughs> that sounds apocryphal. But I know, I, I, I tried to find the actual tape, wonderful. but I can't. It's a good one. That's absolutely brilliant. But that's a idea. I want that to be true. <laughs> but that's no. what went on for years, wasn't it? Yes, and it, it, was, it was an MU requirement. It was to do with, I think it's to do with American musicians. And, you know, providing work for... for but it, it must have provided British work for hundreds of MU people. Oh, yes, they just yeah. turned up at studios as bands were pretending to re-record stuff. You yes. know. And, I think, you know, and some, sometimes they did, obviously. I mean, if you listen to some of the Top of the Pops performances of, of what is allegedly the record, you know, it's clearly not. And it's the, 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 the sort of Philadelphia soul groups are the worst stroke best for this. Where you, you know, Fadden and Whitehead miming something which is clearly not the record it's clearly being re-recorded you know without Gamble and Huff lovingly lovingly yes, yes, yeah, yeah, a bunch yeah. of guys yeah. that they could sawing away <laughs> <laughs> instead of the sound of Philadelphia you got the sound of Shepherd's Bush it's like the Top of the Pops album yes absolutely yeah, 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 bikini yeah, on the cover yeah, yeah. do you think that the general the general gist of, of what the, the BBC's uh, the, the BBC's kind of rock uh, archive and documentary still seems to be and this is in keeping with the drift of monthly music magazines actually uh, 60s and 70s do you think? Do you think it'll move into? Cause I'm, I'm waiting for the big breakthrough. Maybe it'll never come when there are documentaries about, you know, the wedding present and the oh, House of Love. Fair, and the Synth Britannia. The Synth Britannia. That's right. I, I, no, I'm not. This is not a criticism. By the way, I think it's shifting. I, I think yeah. we're now into the 70s and the 80s now. The, the prime yeah. areas. Certainly, when I, I'm, I produced Top of the Pops too as well, um, and that has shifted over the years as you as you kind of feel out oh, to the people who, who, are, who are actually watching it and you know as as those people get older then the their memories lie in different areas and i think the 60s are now pretty much played out for that and so the, the, certainly the early 70s so glam rock i think has had its day in those yes, in those terms right. yeah. and it's drifting through we well, see look at the specials yeah you know we're in we're in the the two tone era now which is what 79 80 Tis. yeah yeah that's a really peak hot period for archive at the moment and that's drifting into the 80s yeah, and Spandau Ballet. It was Spandau Ballet, absolutely. All these yeah, absolutely. kind of things. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Do you think, uh, Elvis Presley, uh, do you think this will be the last time that, that, you know, an anniversary of Elvis Presley's will be 
no. marked in a big way. No. Or do you think it'll go on like the Great War? Yeah, yeah. It's never going to finish. You? I think. It's, I think. It's, I think the Elvis story, like the Beatles story, is an endlessly fascinating one. And it's you know we're never going to get at the actual truth of it now. Don't want you know, the, the truth. No, no. You want <laughs> you want you want the myth. You want these fantastic photographs. I was in in the course of researching this documentary. Looked at this. There's a company called Memphis Recording Services who somehow have, have got the legal right to use that that title, which is the Sam Phillips Sun Studios. Studios. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've been issuing um, material that's out of uh, copyright, primarily the Sun stuff, remastered to a tremendously high degree, with enormous books attached. So there's one which deals with 1955, which has a 400-page book of largely unpublished photographs and telegrams and ephemera. And you look at Elvis in 1955, and he looks so strange, even now. In what way? Just, well, you mean, he I, I, must I, just I, have been so out of... of yeah. you know, in, in the southern states, in yeah, the yeah, mid-1950s. His yeah. visitor from Mars. He's playing, he's playing <laughs> a high school gym in, in yeah. Texas, and he's wearing what can only be described as a safari suit jacket yeah. with a belt. And he yeah. looks like Tanita Tickerham. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his bizarre haircut, and a lace blouse... Yes. A black got, lace got blouse, a transparent in some place, and you're going, that's so odd. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's, that kind of fascination is never going to go away. All those photographs just look incredible. And it's such a, a great story. You know, it, it, it's the tragic Greek myth again, isn't it? Completely. Over and over again. And, and self, I don't think people we'll ever get bored of it. story, you know, if he was still alive now, I wonder if we'd be as interested. I, well, I don't think so. But still the thing that fascinates me, and I was... Reminiscing about this the other day, then the first time I went to to, to America was to Memphis in 1977. It's just after Elvis had died, and it wasn't that big a deal. And Memphis, mm. which is now is now a heritage town, the industry of Memphis is Elvis Presley and Stax and everything else. All its all its you know all its musical heritage. I don't know. How there, there was no trace of that at the time. They were knocking Beale Street down. Oh, yes. They but were is, knocking it down. Is that really that surprising? Because A, his career was this, this critical, certainly his critical uh, uh, rating was at an all-time low. And B, you need a bit of distance from those things to be able to evaluate their work. Well, I think it's I think just the, him. But I think I think it's, also, it's all of Memphis. You know, nobody, if you'd said to people in the mid-70s, do you think in the future coachloads of people will come to this town to look at things that purport to be the, you know, the, the recording desk on which you recorded whatever, uh, and, you know, and go around bus tours around the poorest black area of the, of the town, and go as you did recently to the, the you know, the Stack Studios, which mm. in 1977 was a, was a condemned area. You didn't go in there around Macklemore Avenue. is now reopened as a museum. Yes. But it yeah. said, you're mad. I mean, that would never be that. Stax is actually the classic because you know they, they actually knocked it down. Yes, I have a brick from the original Stax Studios at home, which my wife always goes, "What have you got that for?" Can I throw away your brick? You wouldn't understand. And then <laughs> eventually they decided that was possibly a mistake, a so they rebuilt the studio it's to the exact specifications on the same spot and added a museum. That's no different from what happened in Liverpool. Really, yeah, it's just it's bizarre. But I, th I think with Memphis particularly, it's familiarity. You know, I think they got used to having Elvis around. And so, actually, it wasn't that so much of a big deal. If you, know, but, you see a Cadillac, there's a point where if you saw a Cadillac in Memphis, a huge Cadillac in Memphis traffic, it was either Elvis or Isaac Hayes. Yeah, yeah. 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 And these people were just there. Yeah, yeah. No, but, it's, but, but also, yeah. you know, I, I, I reiterate this point that when he died, you know, for a lot of those people, he was he must have become an embarrassment. He was this massively overweight character in a spangly jumpsuit, ringing up Susie Quattro in a hotel room and ordering a quarter pounder with cheese, and they hadn't quite. It takes a while for you to go back and select your particular Elvis. My particular Elvis is, is the really early one. I could look at pictures of Elvis uh, on stage at those outdoor shows. You know that famous... Uh, oh, in the uh, Overson Park shell. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, one. I stood on that stage. Have you really? Yeah. That's extraordinary. And there he is, playing to a, a load of, uh, of just... I, as you say, no one can understand what the mm. hell is going on. Absolutely. This is Elvis at the time when he's appearing on the television. He's not allowed to be shot from the waist down, etc., etc. That is thrilling. And he looks fantastic. And his, I was listening to, funny enough, I was playing some of his stuff over the weekend. The vocal on those songs, the, 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 the actual performance, the tenor of his voice, the amount of expression he gets in, probably done in one or two takes, is just supernatural, you know. And uh, I don't think anybody went back to that particular Elvis but straight away. It took a few years to get rid of all that Well, I don't, I don't disagree with that, but I think also at the same time, I think, and I'm making up this theory as I go along, uh, 
in the late 70s, the early 80s, the past of pop music started to overwhelm the, the present and the future. It, it sort of, and, it, and it's gone on getting bigger. It's bound to. It's just a kind of mathematical thing. There's more past than there is now. And in 1967, that wasn't the case. Mm. There wasn't, wasn't that much past. And so there was a fantastic focus on the new. And so, you know, you've got the case, Elvis Presley, and it's, it's a cliche, but it's true. Bigger star dead than he ever was alive. Beatles, bigger now, yeah. probably. Mm. Than, but, yeah, I mean, not the same hysteria, but culturally and commercially, probably bigger now than they've ever been. But I mean, that, that early Elvis stuff, particularly, this All the Sun stuff, it wasn't available for a long time. I remember Roy Carr produced for RCA the, in, in the UK in 1975, the, the Sun Collection, which was the first time all of those Sun yeah, 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 records yeah. were gathered together in one place. And we went, oh, you know, scattered over you know, 15 different original albums, oh, we just found another one, bung it on this budget record with something else. But that you, was... didn't, you didn't get the chance for, for focus to go, actually, that's really fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Because it would be, yeah, previously it'd been rubbing up against some terrible overblown, you know, 60s ballad or something from Absolutely. the Absolutely. Well, that's um, absolutely true. I mean, uh, I mean, we talked about this on podcasts before. In the, in, the, in the 1960s, you know, late 60s, you were only really interested in the present tense. You are only really interested in the records that just come out. I don't remember wasting my time going back and listening to, um, you know, um, Sunhouse or whatever when I was when I was fourteen. Because what was happening when I was fourteen, you know, the new releases were so extraordinary. Well, I, I remember when this happened for me, which would have been about nineteen eighty one or eighty two, when I became a huge fan of the Cramps, um, who I just thought were the you know, so most wonderful thing I'd ever seen. And did you ever see them? Did you see oh, them at the I, Lyceum? I booked them. them. I booked them. Um, at the college, I was at, I was at Stirling I University. Saw the and we booked them they on tour with fantastic. the fall. Was this Brian Gregory? With oh, Brian yes, Gregory. Brian Gregory. Oh, God. And we, we quite liked the record, so we booked them. And they just, they seemed to appear in the building. One minute they weren't there, the next minute there they were. And you're going, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and I interviewed them before, I had uh, yeah, callow youth saying, Is there, why, why is it that you don't have a bass player? And Brian Gregory kind of looked at me and said, all bass players are agents of Satan. <laughs> You can't argue with that. No, no, no it's no. not going anywhere. Yeah, no. At that point, is it? <laughs> and, the, and, 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 the, and the next night, we, we, we went to see them in Glasgow Polytechnic, right, which is pizza. a famous riot of a show, which I think the, the Bobby Gillespie was at and Alan McGee and things. And, but, but they were so steeped in those old records that I became interested as a result. Through the crowds, yeah. how interesting. Going, oh, well, let me check out this Jerry Lee Lewis record. Or yeah. let me check oh, out this Paul Revere and the Raiders record. Yeah. I'm quite more manure on my theory as we go, actually. 1979-80, what was happening in music? The specials. Exactly. What were the specials all about? Records had been made in mm. 1965. And I, I vividly remember in, in the summer of 1979 that the gangsters had come out and you could not buy a Scar record for love and money. The only thing available was a four-track EP on the Trojan label, which yeah. had Longshot Kick the Bucket on it and a couple of other things. And there was nothing else. And then there was the Island Intensified label uh, compilation. And you couldn't find it. And you really wanted to dig and find more of this stuff. And it was really exciting. It just wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, because the reissue and, and, industry yeah, and, and at the same time, you had the specials on the one hand, and you had the stirrings of New Romantics on the other. And for the people who come up through punk, really, that, that wasn't going anywhere. And I th there's, a, there's a fairly clear line, I think, between the people who liked, if you want to start this far back, Mott the Hoople and Slade yeah. when they were at school, moved into the punk bands. Right. Yeah. And then once that had fizzled out, sort of went down the rockabilly country route. And I see a lot of people now, and if I go to a, a country show, a rockabilly show, who I knew back in the day who were punks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and whose spiky hair, so not the like my own, has mutated yeah, the right to a clothes, anyway. But which groups are you talking about? Well, can I don't remember a great rockabilly revival of that. Oh, well, there was. I mean, was, the, the, which bands were we talking about? If, well, if you, 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 you assume the Cramps, or? anyway, as, as part yeah, yeah, of yeah. that, and, and an interest in that sort of material, there's a whole lot of... Um, you mean the psychabilly revival? Yeah, yeah. You mean the, uh, but, the but meters? There's a lot of Czech shirt music. Yeah. The Boot Hill Foot Tappers. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Champion Doug Veach. There's a of that kind of stuff. And that, I think, is where a lot of the... I suppose the mainstream rock and roll punk audience went. They went into that sort of music. They went back. Mm. You see, mm. it's my theory. Reversing into the future. I, I'm Were they sorry, first for authenticity? They yeah. probably didn't yeah. like the look of Stephen Tintin Duffy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> quite, quite simple, quite straightforward um, music. Yeah. You know, not overly 
decorated or anything. So I, wish, I wish I'd interviewed the but, crabs. But, oh, oh well, I'd Because Poison Ivy Rorksack was actually quite old, wasn't she? Well, they were both. Uh, so was Lux. Yeah, I mean, Lux was, was probably in his, probably something terrifying, like mid 30s. Well, American punks were like, like Debbie well, Harry. You know, you found out Debbie Harry was 34. You couldn't believe it, you know. When you were 18 at the time. They yeah. were all bohemians, weren't they? They'd got into that. Yes. They? They'd been around. Yeah. They, they'd been on the art scene, hadn't they? They weren't 19-year-old kids oh, no, at all. No. I mean, Lux yeah. in particular was I mean, quite academic. In his, you know, he, he applied himself very vigorously to very low popular culture. Yeah, you know, they yeah. really loved those garage records and yes, those terrible did. films. Movies, but they yeah. were, but they were forensic about it. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, a passing See, I thing. Find that, I always yeah. find that kind of thing faintly boring about American musicians. That, that, that when they get into that kind of thing, they, they take it very seriously. It does so suck some of the spirit out of it. Yeah, it does. Um, well, certainly now, but I think then there weren't that many people doing it. No, there weren't. And, and you know, it, it was fresh and exciting because of that. Now all of that stuff has been, you know picked over and trampled yeah. and all those Oddly enough, I was in Woodstock. Fantasy About a month ago, <laughs> interviewing Debbie Harry and Christine for a, a BBC Worldwide programme about Blondie's BBC Archive. Why does that have to be in Woodstock? I'll ask that. Chris lives in Woodstock now. Really? And you can see Debbie was clearly not very Does comfortable about being in the country. With, are they still a couple? <laughs> no, 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 they're right. long split up. Still you know, very close, I think. Uh, and they're making a record in bucolic Woodstock. Good God. Really? Produced by What's Woodstock like Helm? nowadays? Did you get... Is Big Pink still there? I think it is, yes. Didn't we? we literally kind of drove in and drove out. Oh, uh, right. Um, it seemed very nice. Uh, nice rural studio, as I say. It's a tree. John Sebastian still lives there, doesn't he? Yes. And yep. still apparently yep. wears tie-dyed T-shirts. Well, I believe <laughs> that the credit crunch has, has hit quite badly up there, and a lot of the studios and places are going out of business. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. because you know, John Sebastian no, no. could no longer afford so, to. Possibly re- true. I was <laughs> referring to earlier. Mark got in touch recently, and he was at the Stax Museum, and I thought it was a good opportunity to to, uh, to discuss uh, rock and roll museums we have visited. What's the most ludicrous one anybody's been to? Oh well, the, I don't think it's there anymore. <laughs> don't go looking for don't it. Don't go looking uh, for yeah. it. There was one in Alabama called the Elvis is Alive Museum. Oh, right. Which was dedicated to, well, I mean, collecting a lot of stuff about Elvis, possibly demonstrating they may have been alive or not. Not really very rigorous. <laughs> but, you know, quite entertaining. Yeah. And what, clearly run by madmen. Yeah. What about what, you? What Mark? sort of things? Do you know, I think, uh, apart from what I was involved with, which uh, is a, a great success and still going on, the BME at the O2. Ah, uh, yes, I was so involved I in that as well. Of. You were too, yeah. Um, yeah. It's actually very good. Um, I, that's, um, that's, that's, a, that's a new age uh, museum. That it's a that's very, an experience. It's an interactive thing. Because you you're so not allowed to just have people looking at things No, anymore, no, you right? can't do that anymore. Uh, quite a challenge, actually, I have to say. But uh, I don't know, because I'm not, I'm not sure if I've ever been to uh, a rock or, Name a few that I might have been to. I, I don't know. It's just well, in America. Been to a number well, of them. In America, it always ama- it amazes me that you go in the smallest place and it will have a museum. You know, the, the, they'll have some claim to fame. I went to the Macon, Georgia, Georgia Music uh, museum. So what is the key item on display? Well, Possibly I can't in a actually glass remember. Case. But, you know, basically, Macon, Georgia has two real claims to fame. Otis Redding and the Allman Brothers. And so they had quite a lot on Otis Redding but and the Allman Brothers. But that sounds good. Yeah, yeah, do you have one of Jay Johanny Johansson's drumsticks? I, I can't actually remember. It wasn't... <laughs> That's I, exciting for it me. It wasn't that busy. You know what I mean? I think, you know, I went in there with my family and they were, they were uh, you know, they were shocked to see... You, know, you took your family to see... The, yeah, we were passing through Macon, Georgia, and I said, I'm not... A crate you know, full of Greg Allman's empties. While we're here, I want to go and see... <laughs> Dad, why are you taking us here? Ah, uh, yes, of course. Uh, we had a red lead that was yeah. unsmoked by Dwayne Allman. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, 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 there was the very first time I went to Memphis, which was about 1993, I think. Um, there was a very ramshackle Memphis Music Museum, which was opposite the Peabody Hotel in yeah, clearly yeah. some kind of you know, vacant building. They yeah. chucked all this stuff in. And it, and it, I'd just I'd been to gone down to Memphis because I was in Nashville working for VH1, I thought, I may never get here again. I ought to go to Memphis, just in case. Little knowing, you know, that years on. And we went there, we went to this museum, and and they had one of Elvis's double-necked guitars from Spin Out, or one of those terrible 60s films, oh, yeah, yeah. standing in front of the case, admiring this double-necked guitar, was Jimmy Page. No. <laughs> Page and oh, Blanc, that's playing in good. Memphis that night. That's perfect. Like, oh, 
you know, it, it, it thinks oh, it's some mystical magic experience oh, here. Were you there on that VH1 trip that where everybody at VH1 went to Memphis? No, everybody Apart except me, you, who I stayed at home and ran so ran you, the shop from home. So you missed. I've just got an opportunity to tell them. Not the, either, actually. <laughs> Let's not go on about it. When you're talking Turn about my talking about. <laughs> Androgyny in in Memphis when I was uh, I, I was having breakfast at the Peabody Hotel with Paul King, Paul King of former lead singer of the group King of Love and Pride fame. Yeah, Love and Pride uh, produced and, many shows at, and uh, Paul VH1. producer of VH1 and an adventurous approach to dressing, and uh, he and I were in the in the breakfast room of the Peabody Hotel, which is full of businessmen who look like Jr. out of Dallas, and it's a very straight, respectable place. Bootlace bow ties. Yes. And cowboy hat. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and a uh, I was sitting opposite Paul and we were, you know, having a small talk. And, and then he got up to go back to the breakfast bar to recharge his coffee or whatever. And I realised he was wearing a sarong. With a sarong in my heart. <laughs> a sarong for Europe. Well, Dave, to be fair, in his defence, you know, these people, obviously the locals, were, had to get used to Elvis Presley and his late well, trousers yeah, in 1955. Yeah, yeah. So Paul King rocking yeah. up in a skirt. I mean, the, the, not yeah, going to upset the apple The car. key piece in the Stax Museum, apart from the actual studio itself, um, is Isaac Hayes' Cadillac. Right. Which is a bright electric blue and has... White shag power carpet inside. Yeah, probably on the ceiling yeah, to a, to a depth of at least six inches. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. When, when, he his, when he was trying to double the clutch, did he have a get? <laughs> oh, getting, getting his high heels caught in the shag. It's with so bling. <laughs> that is bread open fire. Yeah. The fire. essence of bling. The, the other very strange thing in the Stax Museum, which is the the, the biggest selling British artist ever signed to Stax Records. Go on, I, I wouldn't be able to tell. It's in the sense Lulu or something like no, that. No, no, it's worse, worse stroke better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Lena Zavaroni. Lena, oh course. my God! Lena wow. Zavaroni was signed to Stax. Yeah, they thought kidding. she was going to be a Carl, Carla Thomas hit, for a new generation. Mama, he's really? making eyes. Because yeah, they me. thought, you know, thought we, like have a hist- we have a history Thomas. of, you know, young girls doing this sort of material. You know, Carla Thomas did BAB. Yeah, B-Y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I thought, Lena Zavaroni, this will do it. Yeah, yeah. Didn't work, of course, stiffed, absolutely, but... That's that's Just the thought of Lena Zavaroni being on Stax Records. Yeah. And they have a, the display in the museum of, I think it's it maybe every single Stax single. And there in there is Lena Zavaroni. In between Sam and Dave. Yeah. Booker T and the well, it's, 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 you know, if, if you go from left to right, it's you're way on the right-hand side and down the bottom. Yes. <laughs> Untouched. Boys, I've got to read you, I've got to read you go his on. correspondence. Uh, we've had uh, various threads run on the word website uh, at the moment, and, and one that Mark, I think, referred to, which is things you've seen on television, you saw on television once, and you've never seen since. And the idea that they've been imprinted on your, on your memory. Chris G sent this one in, which I think touches quite a few of the bases we've been talking about. Uh, In a rare exception to the Spartan regime that ruled our home, I was allowed a day off school ill. So we're going back in time here. While watching our black and white portable with my headphones on, because he couldn't go in the front room in the colour telly, you weren't allowed to, because he was ill. Daytime TV was sparse in the 1980s, and I was watching the lunchtime calendar Yorkshire TV news when they did a piece on the mod revival and showed Secret Affair playing live. Oh, right, OK. 79. Early 80s. 80, no, 81. The next day, back at school, I'd been the only person to have seen this wondrous performance. And for a few brief hours was the ace face of the third year. This elevation in status culminated with lads from older years asking me about it in great detail. Without hitting me once. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, boy, that tells you about the idea that somebody had seen something. You know, yeah. sort of, you can spread excitement yeah. in a school playground in 1981 by just being the person who'd seen yeah. Secret Fair on the television playing live. Completely. Absolutely. <laughs> That's thrilling. Move from that to YouTube, you know, and yeah. Spotify. And, Absolutely. You know, endless availability of everything, you know. It's something extraordinary. It is. The idea that he gives you some sort of special cachet. I'm trying to remember the name of the singer. Ian, Ian, Ian Page. Page. Ian Page. Ian Time Page. for action. Time, Time for, for action. action. That's right. That was their only hit, wasn't it? I think it was. They just did yeah. a song called Secret Affair. Like a self-titled. I think the world, oh, yes. Oh, yes, the self-mythologising yeah. uh, title. They would do. They Skinny would do. ties. That's all I remember. Serious expression. Before yeah, we yeah. finish, one question I wanted to put to you, which I think I warned you about. 
Mark, Mark looks terrified. <laughs> I don't, I don't um, this. Which is, you've all spent a lot of time hanging about backstage at gigs. What secret have you seen backstage that you think might surprise people? Mark Hagen. Tina Turner had a washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think actually is not that, that uncommon in tours of that size. What do you mean? In her, in her dressing room? Adjacent she, to her dressing room. She had a Bendix. Yes. Thrumming yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. And, and a woman clearly charged with, you know, stuffing the costumes in there after the show and making sure there was... Clean and bright for the she next had a day. Washable. Why would she have had that backstage and not not on the tour bus or in the hotel? I mean, was she actually changing costumes? Was she actually wearing them out and having them not sure, not sure. during the performance? I, I was she that... actually coming in back in the encore and the same thing as she wore uh, uh, one hour forty minutes beforehand? No, well, obviously and I was out front at that sweat. point, you know, excited, yeah. but I wouldn't have <laughs> spotted that. But no, I think they just have a, a little town that rolls into these venues. They do. You know, everything. Yeah. Yeah. You've been off the backstage back of the truck. of Bruce yeah. Springsteen. Yes, so yeah. they take. A house, effectively, yeah. don't they? Yeah. They have they have part of the, the the road crew's job. They're set dressers, but they dress the backstage, so that the dressing room, you know, is a certain dimension. So it gives you a familiarity. Look. Exactly, it's got the same furniture in it. It's got the same yeah. hangings in it. It's got the same lamp standard and so forth. So it feels like the same place. So it's not surprising that Bruce Springsteen went on stage a couple of weeks ago in Ohio and said, "Hello, Philadelphia," yeah, which is the first time he's done it, apparently. And did it like three times during the show. Yes, something uh, like that. Well, did it three times just d- deliberately because he knew he'd well, no, he no, he had not. He, he didn't realise that Steve Van Zandt drew his attention to it. Um, you know that, that he'd he'd uh, thanked the wrong city, which is, I think his age is catching up with him. My my uh, my factoid about backstage that might surprise people because it surprised me was something I read recently that Niels Lofgren said, which is. Springsteen's currently doing, making a big feature of uh, requests from the audience. You know, we'll, we'll try any tune, challenge the band, we can do anything, you know. So people go in there holding... And people write the titles of the songs on bits of cards. Right, honky-tonk yeah. women or whatever, yeah. they just want to hear and play it. According to Nils Lofgren, he says it's brilliant nowadays with technology because if somebody calls for a song that we don't know the words of, and Bruce can just flannel for a oh, minute... This, yeah, this is fantastic. He says, yeah. we, have, we have people backstage with broadband, wireless, who can get the lyrics off the web... Yeah, and just paste them onto them the autocue. Put them on the autocue, yeah. and you, you're then singing sweet soul music within, you know, a minute of it being requested. You see, I think that's legitimate and exciting and moves things on, moves things on. but my memory of, of Diana Ross and Supremes for VH1, we went out to make a, oh, yes. uh, a movie uh, uh, about them playing the, what was it called, the Divas show, was it? I can remember yes, it v- yes, yes, yes. And I can remember standing in the wings watching Diana Ross perform and looking out into the audience. Empty auditorium, it was a sound check, but rolling uh, between the two exits on the first tier up were the words, baby love, baby love, <laughs> ooh, ooh, my baby love. <laughs> I remember thinking, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Diana Ross, how many times she shot focus? Yeah, but you wouldn't want it not to remember the words. It's a crucial moment. She comes and she can't remember them. It's nice to have a visual aid at that uh, age. I suppose it is. Because, uh, seriously, this must have, uh, it's, it must be a part of everybody's act nowadays. Well, I think Do- Dolly Parton famously has yes. a between songs patter on the... the well, so I've fine. seen that. Yeah. And you turn around and you Look at it on the on the on the front of the balcony at oh, yeah. Smith Odeon. Mm, you can yeah. read. The oh well, the, the people were turning around and and sort of mouthing the words with her to try and put her off. But and Brian Wilson, anyone who's seen Brian Wilson recently will know, uh, possibly uh, for, for obvious reasons, that everything he says is has been chiselled away, and scripted. <laughs> See, oddly, Bob Dylan doesn't do that. Bob well, Dylan, <laughs> no, that's probably why he's saying it. All he does is tell his strange jokes. <laughs> So, listen, if anybody's got any suggestions for programmes, particularly archive programmes that the BBC ought to be doing and, uh, you know, that the, there might be something in the archive or whatever, if you've got a strange idea, post it on the Word website. Then Mark will fix it. Mark will fix it. If you want a, do you, do you want a one-hour idea? secret affair documentary, this is the place to start. Do you want to hear my, my on, idea? On, you can on. tell me whether this is possible. In the days of, you know, millions of channels, digital, you know, whatever, radio... I would like to be able to travel back in time and listen to a day's Radio 1 output from 1967, 1976, 1982, everything. I'd like to be able to hear the news, the patter, the foolishness, the music. I'd like to be able to travel back, the whole Mm, experience. That's good. You'd hate it, though, wouldn't you? 
No, no. If you, no, if you actually did it, you would hate well, I don't know. swathes of it, I Yeah, but I hate most music radio anyway, so it doesn't make any difference. You know, that's just <laughs> something I'll listen to. You know. I, so can it would. <laughs> can it be done? It could be done for some for certain days. Oh, really? You know, do the, you, the, have, would do be, you have a complete day? What, what? I don't know, but there would, there, there are, I know there are days of, of recording. I mean, I think yeah, the momentous occasions. So I've got to finish with this. Yeah. Something that's, uh, that I launched on the web, word website this morning, it struck me while listening to the traffic uh, on the radio, that uh, certain expressions are used in traffic reports which would make very good names for uh, indie bands. Oh, yeah. You know, the Hangar Lane Gyratory. So you can imagine this. Oh, this is yes. a John Peel session. The you know. Gyratory. <laughs> and the Clackett Lane Services. The former bass player of Clackett Lane <laughs> 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 Various people have... <laughs> I'll translate this to Peel for you, will you? <laughs> Various people have piled in, you know, the Polish War Memorial. That's a good, good name for an indie really band, the isn't Polish it? With the, yeah, yeah, very good. You know, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, and somebody's suggesting, you know, the Army and Navy flyover, supported by Sadler's Farm Roundabout. Well, uh, I mean, we, we ran a piece in Word about band names that ought to be, which is based on something my wife said, actually, at the end of University Challenge, one of her favourite programmes. It just says at the end, and with the voice of Roger Tilling. Uh, who's the guy who does that, uh, you know, Mansfield, Hepworth, you know. Oh, really? And she thought, uh, and with the voice Mansfield. of Roger Till. Mansfield. <laughs> <laughs> I just borrowed made that up. I couldn't think of a universal <laughs> until I made up one called I Mansfield. One. Yeah, I am. And she thought, and with the voice of Roger Tillig was a really good name for an indie band. But anyway, so we ran a whole list of these. And one of the bands that I thought, uh, names I thought, you know, I was amazed there wasn't a group called, was Rumble Strips. At which point have they yes. got loads of angry uh, uh, emails from Rumble yeah. Strips, actually very well established. Was it groups. different Rumble Strips? Or well, I, just I just thought there should be a group called Rumble Strips. Lucas Hare suggests that, uh, you know, he'd like to hear a group go on stage and go, good, good evening, we are Burst Water Main. <laughs> very good, that's good. That'll go down well in Cumbria, won't it? Good, yeah. Yeah, that's very good, yeah. That's very good. And uh, Trevelyan Wright says, the Watford Gap always struck me as a scaffold-type late 60s Very band. good. You know, well, there was one called the Union Gap, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, Skirky points out, from the, you know, there was Hatfield and the North were, were you know, the, the, this very thing. And there, our first album sleep was the uh, the sign, wasn't it? The, the you know, with the, with yes, the, with the yes. round. About yes. well, turning right, which you took to Hatfield and the North. Killed so, on the high road. If you Killed want to, you know, as ever, if you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in this <laughs> podcast, uh, you can take your take your take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Uh, <laughs> the Word website, wordmagazine.co.uk. Mark Hagen, thanks very much for coming in. My pleasure. What are you off to do now? Do you know? I'm going to. Um, just tidy up Susie Quattro's Christmas Day program. Right. Susie's Motown. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. A hidden track. So the, the best backstage that we've done was, was The Stones about ten years ago, the British to Babylon. Oh, and I had to go to um, had to go to Stuttgart because we were recording some some stuff with them. And I was standing in um, in the crew hospitality tent, which was not quite lobster thermidorum, but it was there was an extensive selection of quite attractive food and drink available. <laughs> Next to it were two little white plastic tables, you know, the sort you get in in B and Q with a rather well, desultory umbrella and a bottle of wine. You know, some plastic cups, and I said to the guys, what's, "What's that?" And they said, "They said, oh, that's for the press." <laughs> <laughs> at, at, at that point, I think relations between the, the Stones and their record company were strained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there'd been some complaint that um, the press and the record company weren't getting access to the band, so they uh, they produced an after an after show all access laminate pass, which looked you know very impressive, you know. 3D holographs and all the rest of it. But actually, it gave you access to the plastic table. No, no, what happens in, in, in Stone's Land, of course, is that by the time the last cord has faded away, they're in the car and they've left the building. Yeah. Yeah. So, what this gave you access to was a, a, season, a succession of empty rooms. Yes. Mm. <laughs> That's what happens. But on the same tour, when they got to Wembley, and they were playing Wembley Stadium, the Stones booked Wembley Arena for their backstage. Wow. Really? So they, they took out the, the whole of the arena. And you went in, and depending on the sort of pass that you had, you know, you, it was like the seven circles of, not the seven circles of hell, obviously, but that sort of system where if you went in 
The, so fir- the first bit got was, into reception. Was, yeah, you were the, with, the, the uh, first bit of it was you know David Wigg of the Daily Express. People we don't really know, <laughs> yes, right. we feel we ought to come in and have a drink. Yeah, then the next one in was yeah. We sort of know these people, Few friends and, and it's quite a couple nice. of old arms. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. and you know, slightly better. They're allowed a Scotch egg and maybe a bottle of Budweiser. Next one in is really quite nice food, and the sort of bar where if you ask them nicely, they give you a bottle of vodka and two glasses. And then you got to the. This is where our family are. Yeah, you know, the, the, the real. Yeah, yeah. You know, at the very end of this, and, and in the middle of that were the dressing rooms. And beyond that was just one huge, great shrine, sort of thick velvet, with Keith Richards asleep on a scatter and, and with a shepherd's there pie. With a shepherd's pie. This is the, you can <laughs> see the, the, the you can thought, see this. Sorry, the, 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 the thought of hiring Wembley Arena that is fantastic. <laughs> as your backstage they, area. That is fantastic. When they did that Brazil um, thing on the beach a few years ago, biggest concert ever, largest audience ever, allegedly. Um, you can see this on a, on a, on the on the film that is on whatever their last forty licks DVD w- was. Um, they they took the hotel facing the beach, fantastic hotel, and and they again take their set dresses, go in there, and pretty much knock down walls or whatever, you know, and erect curtains, you know, to to uh, section off various areas, and the sponsors. And this is a free concert, so clearly in Brazil, and Brazil's a big economy. Somebody has assigned the mother and father of a cheque to pay for, you know, the, the stones to do the, to do this, and the poor guy he g- gets to meet the band, you know, what I mean? and basically they, the meet and greet they put people in certain tented areas, and then they whiz the stones through, yeah. you know, they just brought in a low banter, banter, arm round, picture gone. That's your 10 million quid, you know, whatever. That, that's your value. You've got a picture, okay? And it's just, they've got it down to a fine art, the meet and greet. I believe you can buy that sort of package from Kiss at the moment. <laughs> the meet and greet can, with Kiss yeah. package. Really? Several thousand dollars. You, know, you get to hang with Gene for a moment or two. Well, it's probably better than listening to him. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.